Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Tracy, we get so many requests for Hawaiian history. Yes. Uh, which is great. And um, uh, let me set this up and say... This isn't like so much a piece of Hawaiian cultural history, although it is important in some ways in the history of Hawaii, mm-hmm. how that culture changed. But um, many of them have also been for the Dole Plantation specifically. So <laughs> we've had a lot of requests around that, which I was fortunate enough to visit in December. Uh, we've also had requests for the pineapple industry in general, although that's a really long time scale. Uh, so today we're sort of honoring these requests. We aren't talking about the Dole Plantation, but what actually came before it. So we're going to talk about the life and business of John Kidwell, whose work still echoes today in pineapple agriculture. And also just for context, we will talk a little bit about the politics of how the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown, although we're not going to get super deep into the into all of that. Like we will talk about it as it's pertinent to the story, but we're primarily talking about Kidwell on this one. Yeah, there's also episodes in the archive that go through yeah. that whole thing. You can find them. And eventually this one at mistedhistory.com slash tags slash Hawaii. Yay. This conveniently rounds them all up together. So John Kidwell. John Kidwell was born on January 7th, 1849 in North Devonshire. He never shared much information about his early years. So the details there are really sparse. Later in his life, he would describe his childhood as not unhappy, but definitely difficult He didn't know about his father, and his mother, Ann Kidwell, was believed to have been employed as a domestic servant. And Kidwell stayed in Devonshire until he was 15. And at that time, he moved to London for a horticultural apprenticeship under a nurseryman who was also a relative. And he worked with this distant cousin in London for approximately eight years, from 1864 to 1872. At that point, Kidwell left Great Britain and headed west to the United States, working in a number of jobs all centered around plants and agriculture. According to his own claim, he was a nurseryman in San Francisco in 1874. He was listed as a gardener in the city's directory from 1879 to 1882, working for a man named John H. Sievers, uh, and that was in 1880 and 1881. Yeah, that overlapped with his his listing as a, a general gardener. But after less than a decade in California, Kidwell decided that he wanted once again to travel west, and this time the destination was the Hawaiian Islands. He had, while working in San Francisco, had the opportunity to meet a number of clients who had come from Hawaii. And through them, he was encouraged to go there and set up a nursery in the islands. Several of the contacts that he made while he was in San Francisco provided him with letters of introduction as well as encouragement. So he had the way paved to make some really valuable business connections on the island of Oahu. Kidwell set up his Oahu nursery in the midst of a significant agricultural shift that was taking place throughout the Hawaiian islands. Subsistence farming was receding from the landscape and was rapidly being replaced with commercial agriculture. The primary crop was sugarcane. And the makeup of the people who lived and worked on the islands was shifting as well. Immigrants from the American continents, Europe, and Asia made up a steadily growing portion of the population. And most of the commercial farming work was being done by that immigrant population. 
We have mentioned several times on the podcast the fact that European and American business interests really imposed their will on the Hawaiian islands in the 19th century. The monarchy of Hawaii slowly lost its power, and the U.S. began to be the dominant influence there by the mid-1870s. By the 1880s, the sugar plantation owners had so much power over the Hawaiian economy that they were able to control the Hawaiian government, which needed the revenue that the plantations were generating. That transition is discussed in an episode that previous hosts Katie and Sarah did back in 2010. The 1880s commerce and power grab that ultimately led to Hawaii losing its independence was centered entirely around sugarcane, and we'll come back to this in a bit. Yeah, while sugarcane was the biggest export at the time, there was a growing demand for another Hawaiian crop, and that was pineapples. Particularly in San Francisco, pineapples became a coveted import. And there were efforts to pick green pineapples and ship them across the Pacific to California. Those exported pineapples weren't from a cultivated farm, however, but they were wild. Uh, and they weren't very good. And as a quick aside, there is a lot of debate over when pineapples actually made their way to Hawaii in the first place. You will see dates everywhere from the 1500s to the 1700s, literally everywhere in between. Um, so this was not a cultivated crop. They were just kind of an accidental growing thing at this point. Uh, but in addition to not being terribly good pineapples, they also had to be shipped from the Hawaiian island, that is what we normally today would call the big island to make it easier to identify, uh, to the port at Honolulu on the island of Oahu, and then they would wait there in port until the next leg of their journey to California. But John Kidwell thought that if he could cultivate pineapples and do it on Oahu, where Honolulu is, both the fruit and the shipping method could be improved. So he partnered with a man named Charles Henson, who had already been cutting and shipping wild pineapples. They took shoots from the pineapples on the Big Island to start their own crop. And that is where Kidwell's horticultural work really began. Yeah, I read one account that said that Henson had started sort of this casual exporting of pineapples by throwing occasional, like a few pineapples in with his shipments of other goods. And that that's really how people started to uh, pick up the demand for more Hawaiian pineapples. And so at this point, Kidwell planted between four and five acres of pineapple on Oahu in the Manoa Valley. So that's just south of the North Shore area and Waikiki which in the 1880s was only just starting to see tourist development after it had been used primarily as a getaway spot for Hawaii's royal families. So if any of you listening have been to modern-day Waikiki, you know how completely different it must have been when it only had a few small hotels, because now it is a very busy and very developed place. Kidwell's early pineapples had benefited from being farmed rather than allowed to grow wild, but they still weren't producing very good fruit. So he decided to diversify the crop. In 1885, he received an order of a variety of pineapple called smooth cayenne. He had ordered the plants from an ad in a periodical called the Florida Agriculturalist. But he didn't stop there. The following year, he ordered a thousand pineapple plants from Jamaica to test in Oahu soil. He either got obsessive or aggressively thorough after that, depending on your point of view. He wanted to ensure that his acreage was producing the best possible pineapple, so he then sent away to London for an immense sample set. He wanted four of every known type of pineapple, which meant that he found himself with 31 additional species to test. 
And while he was testing all of these crops for hardiness and fruit quality, he was also testing different methods of cultivating plants. Like he had a lab where he was also doing like finer botany type work. Uh, and his work would that he did during this time would inform agricultural science going forward. But after all that testing, the one that Kidwell decided was the best was the one he had started with, the smooth cayenne. So he decided to take production of it into a much larger scale and plant a commercial crop. His plantation, which he was running solo because his business partner, Charles Henson, had passed away from tuberculosis in 1886, was soon producing and selling pineapples primarily to local consumers, although he also shipped his surplus to California. Just four years from the time that he had started his experiments, his business was thriving. But he saw an opportunity to expand in a new way. Part of the problem of selling his surplus fruit to North American buyers was shipping it. It was hard to control the quality and freshness, and shipping it any farther than than the California coast was basically impossible. So he had the idea to start canning it. Next time, we'll talk about Kidwell's canning efforts and some legal issues that he ran into. But first, we will take a quick sponsor break. So not surprising, considering his care and diligence in testing his plant species, Kidwell was also pretty meticulous in working to develop a canning method. And he found another partner for this project, a man named John Emeluth, who owned a very successful plumbing and household furnishings business in Hawaii. Emeluth, who was originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, began testing canning processes. And their initial testers were families who volunteered for the job. I mean, uh, that is, I would volunteer for that. Yummy pineapple, bring it to me. <laughs> While Kidwell tended to the plantation and the canning efforts, Emeluth traveled to the U.S. to sell the product, but he soon realized there was going to be a problem with this business, and that problem stemmed from import tax. Even though he was told over and over that the Hawaiian canned pineapple was better than domestic, no one was willing to pay the 35% duty on it. Emeluth had invested $2,000 in the canning enterprise, and over the course of two years, he was only able to make $1,600 of it back. And we should also point out here that Kidwell and Emeluth were not, by a long shot, the first to try canning pineapple in Hawaii. It's not like they invented the idea of canning pineapple. The Kona Fruit Preserving Company, founded in 1882, also tried it, but ran into basically the same problems of financial loss that Kidwell and his partner did. The Manoa Valley Plantation had grown to 10 acres, and keeping up with shipping fresh pineapple to San Francisco to meet the demand there was becoming increasingly problematic for Kidwell, so much so that he started to find himself in legal hot water. In 1888, Kidwell had signed a contract with a fruit exporter named Peter Camerinos to sell his entire crop to Camerinos. Uh, he would then export to San Francisco. And that transaction went well, so well that the contract was renewed two times. In April of 1890, the two made a new deal that uh, Camerinos would buy any pineapple of Kidwell's that weighed more than three pounds, which is about 1.4 kilograms, for 35 cents each. The contract was supposed to last for 30 months starting in June 1890, but a year into the deal... Camerinos claimed that Kidwell had been selling him poison pineapples. This legal battle would drag on for four years, but it was not just about pineapples. 
So this is all happening, you recall, as the Hawaiian government was losing power to U.S. business interests. Kidwell was a member of the Reform Party, made up primarily of white businessmen, while Camarinos was a royalist. And when the anti-monarchy bayonet constitution was enacted in 1887, it had been signed under duress by King Kalakaua. And the militant reformist group that had forced that signature included none other than Kidwell's business partner, John Emeluth. So all of those politics colored the situation and added tension to just the basic problem of uh, Camerinos feeling like he was not being delivered worthwhile goods. In April 1892, a little less than a year after Camerinos first told Kidwell he didn't want to buy any more of his poisoned pineapples, there was a judgment in Camerinos' favor. But Kidwell appealed that judgment repeatedly. At one point in the proceedings, Camerinos even tried to have Kidwell's plantation taken from him, but that motion failed, and Kidwell eventually exhausted all of his appeals options. And as that legal battle kept grinding on... Camarino started his own pineapple plantation on Oahu at Kalihi, which is closer to Honolulu and the shipping port than Kidwell's. Camarino's also became a partner in a second plantation in 1891 as part of a larger enterprise called the Pearl Fruit Company, making Camarino's a rival to Kidwell in pineapple production on the island. In 1892, Kidwell expanded his own business holdings, though the lawsuit was still plaguing him. He leased a hundred acres of land and then formed the Hawaiian Fruit and Packing Company Limited. Kidwell was president, and he and Emiluth, who was also the company's secretary, were the principal shareholders. While this might have been a natural progression of Kidwell's business, it was also uh, kind of a pineapple business arms race. To compound the tension, Lauren A. Thurston, who was vice president of this new company, was also a leader of the Reform Party. And if you're wondering what the source of the tainted pineapple issue had been in the first place, uh, well, the cause is known, but the motivations for the action that inadvertently caused it are murkier. So Kidwell had been cutting the crowns, those are those spiky leaves at the top of pineapples, off of his fruit, and he claimed that it was to make the fruit grow bigger. So um, I tried to look up exact whether or not this is a valid way to do it. I couldn't find anything specific. I'm presuming that the logic here is that the plant isn't wasting resources supporting the foliage, and so the fruit gets plumper, because uh, similar things will be done with flowering plants, like with roses. You're supposed to cut the new growth so they'll keep flowering. Uh, so horticulture pros out there, let us know if that logic is faulty, but I think that's what he was getting at. However, a witness in the case, who also happens to be Camerino's brother, testified that Kidwell had killed the top growth on the pineapples so that no one else could use them to start their own plants. And that is something you can do with pineapples, cut the crown off of it to grow a new plant. So it's possible that Kidwell was trying to keep his his competitors from basically stealing his cultivation work. Since Camerinos did go into pineapple growing as their feud dragged on, Kidwell may have had some valid suspicions about him on this score. Yeah, and it's unclear why, but in this testimony, Camerinos' brother said that Kidwell had told him all of this, which is a little bit weird. I'm not sure why you would uh, tell someone that you were doing a thing to, to protect your crop, but maybe you would. But the bottom line is that cutting those crowns off left the pineapples open to bacterial growth and decay. So they were tainted. Camerinos was definitely getting tainted fruit when he first moved to sever this contract. Politically, 
Hawaii was experiencing ongoing turbulence, and that was also causing serious financial problems. In 1891, Queen Liliuokalani succeeded her brother Kalakaua when he died. And she quickly made enemies of the Reform Party members with her nationalist program that was intended to diversify Hawaii's revenue streams. She also wanted, for obvious reasons, to get rid of the monarchy-crippling bayonet constitution. Yeah, there were, uh, you know, she basically wanted not just agriculture to be running the financial show for Hawaii. And of course, all of those white business interests that had gone there and put time and effort into growing their businesses were like, no, no, we love controlling your economy. The McKinley Tariff, which was passed in 1890, had already dealt a pretty serious blow to the Hawaiian economy. Under King Kalakaua, Hawaii and the U.S. had reached an agreement that sugarcane from the islands could be imported to the U.S. duty-free. But the McKinley Tariff instituted a steep tax on any foreign goods, part of a plan to bolster U.S. industries by making importing less lucrative. And this sent the sugarcane industry into freefall because it was no longer immune to taxes, with an estimated annual loss to the Hawaiian sugar plantations of $5 million. So for both reformers and the queen alike, agricultural diversification became the focus of an attempt to resuscitate the nation's economy. But the means to that end were not agreed upon. The queen planned to lease out crown lands in small parcels to get a variety of different growers and crops up and running. But of course, the large plantation interests were not interested in the idea of the small parcels. No, they were like, just give us big chunks of your crown lands and we'll we'll take care of the rest. <laughs> we want to make gigantic monoculture farms. That's exactly what they wanted. In 1893, the queen was overthrown. And that coup was led by Kidwell's vice president, Lauren A. Thurston. John Emmeluth was also involved. Uh, Sanford B. Dole, who was the cousin to James Dole, who would eventually become Hawaii's pineapple king, had been part of the elitist pro-Western movement that overthrew the monarchy as well. Um there, there's sometimes a conflation where people want to put Sanford Dole in the Dole pineapple zone. He really didn't seem to have much to do with it, although certainly uh, James Dole and the Dole plantation and the Dole pineapple industry did benefit from from this effort in the long run. Uh, and as for Kidwell, he was also a participant in the coup, although not in a leadership position like his business associates. He served in the insurgent militia as a sharpshooter in a support role for the leaders of the coup. Sanford B. Dole was made president of the New Republic of Hawaii after Lauren A. Thurston turned down that job. And we could do an entire separate episode on the nuances of this governmental takeover, and perhaps we will at some point because there's more even than has been included in previous episodes that other hosts have done. But for the purposes of this episode's focus, we're going to talk about what happened to the pineapple industry and to Kidwell after the coup. But before we do that, let's pause for another word from one of our sponsors. Just prior to that takeover that made Hawaii no longer a monarchy, a legislative assembly that had been tasked by the queen with helping the farm diversification effort had passed an act that made all tools, machinery, appliances, buildings, and land used in the pineapple industry exempt from tax for 10 years. So, of course, the businessmen who overthrew Lili Uokalani were totally on board with keeping this particular piece of legislation. 
Back on the pineapple plantation, Kidwell and Emiluth were still working on their canning needs. They hired a canner from Baltimore to lead the way. He turned out to be a failure. So Kidwell decided he would have to learn about canning himself, uh, putting that meticulous nature back to work. And Kidwell developed a very aggressive and thorough inspection process, perhaps because he had been spooked by that whole tainted fruit lawsuit. And before long, he had the cannery at Hawaiian Fruit and Packing Company producing 10,000 cans of pineapple each day. From 1895 to 1898, pineapple exports out of Hawaii increased nearly sixfold. But even though Hawaii wasn't taxing the means to grow and can pineapple, the U.S. tariff was still making it really hard to turn an actual profit. Fresh pineapples could be shipped to the U.S. duty-free until 1897. Though the limitations that led Kidwell to start canning the fruit were still there and still made it difficult to turn a large profit that way as well. Buyers were also willing to really haggle over the prices that they paid for canned pineapple. There was never any argument about the higher quality of Hawaii's product, and particularly Kidwell's, but with growers in Singapore willing to sell canned pineapple at a much lower price, the quality became less of a bargaining chip. Kidwell's last canned pineapple shipments went to a San Francisco importing firm called William Diamond & Company at a rate of $2.35 per dozen cans, which is a price Kidwell really had to fight to get. But once the shipment was in San Francisco, the product just did not move. It finally had to be sold off at drastically reduced prices. And aside from his very early years, Kidwell had at this point just been struggling in the pineapple business, which had to have been frustrating in light of the fact that his pineapples were consistently regarded as the best available. So at the age of 50, Kidwell sublet his fields to a sugar plantation, sold his cannery to former rival Pearl City Fruit Company. That was that venture that Camarinos had been part of. And he retired. And this was in 1898, the same year that Hawaii was annexed by the United States. After retirement, he used his money from selling the cannery and the rent on his land sublet to fund travels around the world, although he always considered Honolulu home. He remained a bachelor his entire life and seemed to really have a lot of fun in his retirement. He was attending the celebration of the 21st anniversary of the Shriners Aloha Temple uh, when he became ill. He never recovered and and died on July 6th, 1922 at Queens Hospital in Honolulu. And what's really interesting about Kidwell's work in the pineapple industry is that while it wasn't a sustainably profitable business for him, it really paved the way for the success of those who followed. He is considered the founder of the pineapple industry in the islands, but he got out right before things really had the potential to turn around for him. Once Hawaii became part of the U.S., that meant that the tariff issue was no longer a concern. And the pineapple industry as a primary export of the of Hawaii experienced a huge revival in the early 20th century. Because of the early work John Kidwell had done in cultivating the hardiest and tastiest fruit, the growers who came after him were able to command much higher prices when they came out from under the tax cloud. And the whole industry became decidedly profitable. Uh, Hawaiian pineapple, of course, is still renowned for being very vigorous, productive, pest and disease tolerant, and above all, super delicious. And that's thanks to Kidwell's painstaking research. Like, he became so involved in business that I think we forget that it started with this horticultural effort on his part. But of course, Kidwell's legacy is 
unfortunately also tied to that bloodless coup of white businessmen that overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy. So it's not like an entirely like happy skippy story, but it is pretty interesting how long reaching his horticultural work really has been. Like we're still benefiting today if you eat pineapple from Hawaii from the tests that he was doing in those fields in the 1800s. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do. It is a follow-up to a thing we have talked about a couple times, but it's a really cool follow-up because it's a great gift from our listener, Jessica. She included a card that said, Dear Holly and Tracy, greetings from Pittsburgh, where the Vero Brothers diorama, formerly known as Arab Courier Attacked by Lions, has been getting a lot of attention. It was just reinstalled this January after study and restoration, and now bears the name Lion Attacking a Dromedary, a translation of the original French title. Uh, as you may have heard, we heard it a lot. Uh, an x-ray revealed that the figure of the courier does in fact contain human remains, a skull of unknown origins. Jessica works in the same building at the Carnegie Museum of Art, and now that the piece is reinstalled in a central location, she gets to pass by it regularly. Uh, she says, every time I think of your episode on the Vero Brothers, the museum is, perhaps understandably, not as forthcoming with the story of the Vero's more unsavory practices, so I'm grateful for the deeper context you've imparted to what is, without question, a fascinating and important artifact. I thought you might enjoy reading about the new presentation of this tableau, so I'm sending along this little book produced for the reinstallation. Unfortunately, no snow globes are available in the museum shop. Thank you for the years of entertainment and education. So one of my favorite things on this earth are museum catalogs and museum books. Oh, yeah. And this one is adorable because it's small. Oh, nice. But it is packed with really beautiful up-close pictures of the reinstallation, like the the work that they did. It's also got some cute little facts, like in terms of the copy that's in it. Um, it's it's basically short little chunks of information, but the photography is beautiful because it's really, really tight detail um, photography of various parts of the uh, the installation. So it's really cool. This is like... You know, one of those things that I would have bought if I were there, and now we have it as a gift, so I don't have to, and now I want to go see it immediately. Let's go do that. Uh, <laughs> um, so thank you so much for sending us that, uh, Jessica. I super duper appreciate it. It's beautiful. I love a museum book. One of my favorite things on earth. Uh, I will be pouring over this at lunch today. Yay. If, uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so by writing us at history podcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as at Mist in History. That includes Twitter at Mist in History, Facebook.com slash Mist in History, Instagram at Mist in History, Mist in History.tumblr.com, Pinterest.com slash Mist in History. I think I've covered the bases. <laughs> if you would like to learn a little bit, uh, about what we talked about today or really about anything you want, go to our parent site, House of Works, type something you're interested in in the search bar. You will get all kinds of cool information and articles. We'll keep you busy, informed, and entertained. You can also visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com where we have an archive of every episode of the show ever so you can go back and listen to Sarah and Katie's episode on uh, that last Queen of Hawaii. You can also listen to anything we've ever done and you can read show notes of any episode that Tracy and I have worked on together. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 